Hi, and welcome back to This Week in Voice, Season 6, Episode 4. So we've been off a couple of weeks. Uh, sorry, uh, we've been busy. Um, we, uh, we've been bringing uh, in-person events back, uh, among other things, uh, but glad to be back in the saddle with, uh, with three great guests. And uh, thanks to everybody who has been watching on YouTube, been listening on your podcast provider of choice um, as we get rolling with this new season. It's great to have podcasts back because it's just another step toward uh, feeling like anyway that we have uh, some sense of normalcy uh, returned, even if maybe we don't. My name is Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of Project Voice. Um, glad, to, glad to be here with a all-star group of panelists. Rana, I'm going to start with you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about behavioral signals and, and the great work that y'all do. For sure. Uh, thanks for having me here on the show, Bradley, first off, and uh, good to see you again. Um, I'm the CEO of Behavioral Signals. I'm Rana Gujral. Um, at Behavioral Signals, uh, we focus on um, a variety of insights that can be generated from the, the tonal portion of a conversation, pitch and tonal variance and uh, tonality. We built um, some advanced engines that uh, cue off on the tonality or the how something is being said and unravel a variety of signals uh, like emotions, behaviors, and also certain advanced classifiers that can potentially be called intent signals. So for example, predicting uh, the intent of a participant uh, in terms of the context of the conversation. Will the client buy or not buy or debt holder pay or not pay, or you could just take it in any direction. Um, so those engines uh, have been in the works for over two decades, uh, you know, uh, through a lot of research the founders have done. Um, the company was a spin out from USC. Uh, a lot of this technology was built at USC at Sale Lab. Uh, one of our founders is actually an executive director and founder of Sale. And um, what we're doing today with this technology is we've built uh, a product called AI-mediated conversations. And AI-mediated conversations, or AMC, is really an AI-powered matchmaking engine um, between uh, agents and clients. So what we do is we, we build uh, these advanced uh, behavioral profiles, or, or we also call them conversational bioprints, uh, based on uh, processing previous uh, you know, vocal interactions, previous phone calls, and, uh, and focusing just on the tonality piece. And then using those profiles, um, we have a very good understanding of uh, the conversational dynamic of an individual and then use that knowledge to find the absolute best matches between an agent and client dynamically live uh, in the moment. And that has a direct impact on the outcomes, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, coming out of those conversations, whether that be increased sales or improved revenue recovery or uh, other CSAT KPIs. Um, so that's a very, uh, I guess, a high level overview. There's a lot that the technology gets into, um, but uh, that's what we do. Excellent. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Bradley. You got it. Uh, next, John, uh, Open Voice Network. Great to have you on the show as well. Tell us about yourself. Tell us about the great work y'all are doing with Open Voice Network. Bradley, thank you, and, and it's great to have, great to be part of this. Um, if can can you hear me? Just raise your hand, Bradley, if you can hear me. I was afraid the connection was 
Great. John Stein, Executive Director, Open Voice Network. And we're the we're the open source community of really of the Linux Foundation, dedicated to voice and dedicated to voice that quote unquote is worthy of user trust. It's a look to the future of a worldwide voice web. And what we do is we're working on technical standards and also ethical use guidelines for this future world of billions of destinations in the voice web. My background, um, gosh, 15 years in the retail business, trying to persuade customers to buy products. And then another 15, 20 years in the technology industry from Intel to Cisco and back to Intel. Conversations that started the Open Voice Network and Bradley, you were part of it, really um, took a look at what is the future going to be of this amazing industry and what does the worldwide voice web look like and what will it demand to be let's say open interoperable and you know value producing for the entire world and the entire industry so bradley thanks for having me i'm glad to be here john it's great to have you as well thank you for making the time thanks for all the work you do too third we have Thomas Lindgren of WanderWord. Thomas, it's great to have you. Uh, great to see you uh, about a week or two ago as well. Tell us about all that you do and tell us about WanderWord. Well, thank you, uh, Bradley. And first of all, <laughs> uh, apologies for sitting in the back of a car uh, driving uh, back from a, a mountain trip. Uh, but hopefully you can both hear me and see me and even though it's pitch black here in, in Sweden. Once again, Project Voice X, excellent event. Uh, super uh, fantastic to be there in Fort Walton. Yes, so uh, WonderWord uh, is set out to be the, the tool for anyone who wants to create interactive audio entertainment. Uh, what we do is we focus on saying that we want to create tools. So if you want to create an interactive audiobook, interactive audio game, we have the tools for you. We see that we are now with voice and conversational AI, very much like we're in the beginning of the 2000s for the mobile phone and when the smartphone came out. And to actually replicate what we did in the gaming industry, we need to put tools in the hands of authors, content creators, and others so they can actually develop the kind of entertainment we all want to see and we all know that's going to be there. We have, amongst other things, an editor and an engine called Fabella, but we also have a studio developing first-class content. So we sign IPs from the best brands in the world, no matter if it's the book publishers, like the HarperCollins of the world, or if it's from the big gaming companies like Microsoft, uh, who has, for example, In Exile, or if it's from Paizo, et cetera. Uh, one of the most known titles we have and we manage is called Starfinder, has been awarded many different uh, prizes. And we also have one of the most played games on Alexa, uh, which is called Cursed Painting. But myself, I've been in the gaming industry for a little bit more than 20 years. Um, and the, prior to that, I was a consultant running a lot of business development around the, the world. Totally excited to be here and being part of this, this show. So thank you very much. Thomas, great to have you as well. So just a great, uh, great panel and, and appreciate all of y'all gentlemen uh, making the time. So with that, we'll get to the news. And uh, this is a fun week because, uh, you know, I don't get to uh, highlight the writings of Dan Miller all that often, but uh, when we get an opportunity to do that, definitely enjoy it. Uh, Dan Miller of Opus Research wrote uh, on November 1st, this is called M&A Watch, Live Persons Transformational Acquisitions. Uh, 
And uh, Dan, uh, very good about being concise, but really talks about um, uh, a, a couple of acquisitions that live person made uh, to transform their business and, and sort of reflects on uh, the larger trends at play. And as we go through the stories, we'll rotate the order. Uh, I'm going to just start with the same order we just used for the introduction. So Rana, I'm going to start with you. Um, what do you glean from uh, this story? What do you take away? You think this is, um, you know, is there anything that, that, that stands out about what Dan had to say? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's really interesting, uh, but not necessarily shocking in any ways, right? So I think you've seen the trend emerge, um, and I think uh, he in that in that piece of news he uses this word, uh, which is just super simple, but um, it kind of sums everything, which is like you know, it's all about listening well, and it is all about listening well, and uh, there's there's a lot of cues um, in those touch points, so this in those interactions, and the the question is. You know what are um, what is our ability to listen well, and uh, how 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 have we done that, say a decade ago, uh, versus what are we doing to listen well today, and those tools are changing, right? So I mean, those early days of NLP um, were sort of simply, you know, trying to. Uh, trying to understand language and accents and then uh, derive words from, you know, the intelligence from meaning from the words being spoken. And now um, it is, uh, it's an only channel interaction. There's multiple touch points and uh, there's a variety of other intelligence that you can garner and gather from a variety of different touch points. And I think, you know, what live person's acquisition of voice space and tenfold um, sort of, it speaks to that you have to you have to sort of like, you know, build uh, that rounded set of capabilities. And um, I think uh, it's very relevant. And you'd see that a lot of those consolidations, I mean, in fact, you know, in one of that, um, one of the pieces of the article, we also sort of speaks to uh, these large uh, contact center solutions. I mean, you know, talk about the big boys in the industry, Nice and Genesis and Verent. They kind of do everything in that stack, right? So from from the the telephony systems to the the underpinnings and the in, in the middle piece to some of these advanced speech analytic solutions, but for the most part, you know, you have these specialized players emerging in the market that have uh, these specialized capabilities. Um, you know, some using AI, others not necessarily using AI, but they're still very relevant. And now uh, the ecosystem is sort of like consolidating by using those special sauces into these stacks. And that's what we're sort of seeing. There's a lot of synergies. I mean, we get a, uh, we're getting a lot of interest from some of these players as well. Uh, I mean, we, we're actually a partner of Unifor and uh, we're in talks with Verint and others. And we're talking to sort of like these players and sort of say, well, how do we fit in and how do we help you? So you built these advanced products and you built this, capabilities that go solve a certain problem, like either it's automation or uh, agent experience. Uh, but we have the secret sauce. We have this, not secret sauce, I guess, special sauce. And how do we actually allow the special sauce to improve the flavor of your offering? And so I think that's what this article speaks to. And uh, it's really interesting. We, we're seeing this trend emerge uh, um, you know, uh, at quite an aggressive pace, I'd say in the last five to seven years. And I think it's going to accelerate. Um, so, uh, we're, we're really excited about it. Yeah, no, complete agreement. John, uh, want to go to you next, uh, your thoughts. 
I'm going to echo what Rana said and said so well. Um, two things. One, just the growth of the ecosystem. This is the sign of an increasingly maturing industry. Now, we're still in adolescence. You know, make no mistake that voice is, you know, deeply mature. But the growth of ecosystem and specialty players is a very important issue and trend. The second thing is, um, let me emphasize the power of listening. Um, I was in, in sales way back when and had a mentor emphasize to me that the act of persuasion and communication was based more on listening than it was speaking. And in fact, he used this phrase, you know, the good Lord gave you two ears and one mouth. That was a statement of priority. And we all too often ignore the power of listening and listening analysis within voice. You know, it's focused on, you know, we talk all the time about dialogue development, dialogue design and conversationalism. Uh, listening. Conversation is speaking, but good conversation is driven by listening and a couple of things taken away from there. Yeah, no, com complete agreement. And Thomas, want to go to you as well, get your thoughts on um, what Dan wrote and what Live Person uh, has done with these acquisitions. Yeah, no, and, and I'm going to echo the, both previous speakers here, and, and I really <clears throat> like the you know, listening well. It's extremely important, and <clears throat> we're going to get back to that as well on, on another topic later on in today's show. But also what I think it was John is saying, and, and we see that so many companies have now been around for quite some in this young industry, and, and very important that we all understand that we're in fairly young in industry. And now we start seeing that actually a lot of mergers and acquisitions start happening. We start seeing a consolidation in the industry. And I think that's the aspect that looking at that thing, hey, some players are going better and faster. And therefore, they, we will see some strong players in this uh, industry. And, and, and I like that. But, but back to uh, but listening well, it, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. And we need to be better at listening in so many ways. So, uh, yeah, no. Both, both previous speaker on, on, on that note. Absolutely. <clears throat> you know, it feels like, um, uh, well, I was thinking about the fact that when I started the show, um, I thought it was insane to call something this week in voice because there's not going to be anywhere close to enough stories each week to justify a show. You know, I'm just going to end up regurgitating the same stories every, you know, every week, uh, you know, talking about the same story over multiple weeks or whatever. And now we've gotten to the point where uh, if I want to, I can just have the whole show be about mergers and acquisitions. Um, <laughs> and it's just going to get worse uh, as we go along. So it's a good one to start with, you know, Dan likes to talk about it. He gravitates to an Opus research gravitates toward these enterprise use cases, which I think are, are really important, but uh, uh, my mind goes to uh, just the, the M&A activity we're going to be seeing, and Botmark's a good example of that as well. We'll talk about them next week, uh, just having gotten uh, swallowed up by, by Walmart in, in a great deal for, for both parties. So anyway, great commentary all the way around, and we'll, we'll roll right on to story number two, which is from payments.com. Healthcare's use of voice tech seen as game changer for diagnostics and patient experience. 
So, um, John, I'm going to start with you with this. So here we are. I like to include some of these um, articles where, uh, you know, I guess I'd call it a catch-up article where, you know, it's not, there's no news being made here. It's basically um, some news source kind of getting caught up uh, or, or coming to some realization that, that, you know, maybe it had been out there for a little while. I, I'll, I'll call attention to the fact that uh, this is a financial website talking about voice and healthcare, which I think is, is its own commentary. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I'm interested to hear out of the generalities this article makes, what stood out to you and, and what you think this article uh, reflects? The first thing that stood out to me is, yes, it's a catch-up article. It's, oh my goodness, look at this. And to those, you know, but it's important, this such a catch-up article is important because what we may see as obvious, Voice can have value in healthcare. Voice can have value in retail. Voice can have value in financial services. Voice has value in publishing. I mean, Bradley, all the industries that you explore and explore so well, it seems so obvious to those of us who are in the industry. It is not obvious. And I think this is a takeaway for me always. It's not obvious to the corner office because the transition of voice from being cool oh, wow, it talks to me, it listens to me, it responds to me, to being a tool from C-O-O-L to T-O-O-L is the transition that we're in. And we're in the early days of that transition and it's an S-curve. And we're not going to see much you know, immediately right now, but it will take off. So such a catch-up article, a, a, hey, it's out there, is indicative of the place we are on the S-curve and how much work we have to do. That's one takeaway. Second is it only begins to explore what's possible in healthcare. I mean, Rana knows, Thomas knows, we're all aware of the remarkable research going on with biomarkers. From MIT to here to there to wherever, you know, cough and by, and as in China, and you can have an early leading indicator diagnosis, not a complete diagnosis, but a leading indicator of COVID-19, of Parkinson's, of schizophrenia, of this. You know, the research papers are abundant, as well as the fact that voice is hands-free, it's hygienic, it's and et cetera. And the use of voice in multiple clinical settings, from the surgical suite to just the daily operation within a family practitioner's work no longer touching the greasy screens, no longer sitting there and ignoring the patient while the clinician is typing desperately to do the charts. So it's indicative of where we are. It's also a wake-up call for all of us, but it does begin to explore, my goodness, there's tremendous opportunity here for us to develop value and move voice from being cool to being a tool for value within healthcare. No, that's great. And uh, Thomas, I'll uh, I'll ask you the same thing. You know, what stood out to you in this article, and just uh, you know, from your point of view, uh, with the work that y'all do with gaming and interactive audio, audio entertainment, 
um, noting the fact that, you know, a company like Costco Companion, um, who's gotten their technology into all sorts of senior living facilities and, and health systems, uh, has established such an ecosystem in Beachhead to where they're looking for content. You know, they're looking for entertainment to keep people entertained. So we're really seeing some some interesting blurred lines. I, it, it'll be interesting to get your thoughts on this article and and uh, what stood out to you. Yeah, first of all, I think it was an extremely well-written article. Uh, it was easy to understand for people that are not in the industry. And and thanks, John, for pointing that out. With things that we know that are in the industry, we. But this article points out in a very easy way for the patients and for, for the doctors uh, that, hey, look at all the uses you can have uh, with voice. And uh, the second thing I think that was very interesting with this are showing that and make you wait again, exactly like John said, the doctor can talk to the patient. And while they're talking, someone is actually picking up what is said and you can then get that transcribed right after that appointment and the doctor or whoever it is does not need to sit there and write notes and then type it out and then send out a prescription, whatever it is, shows the efficiency. Thirdly, I think exactly saying, look, now, room or wherever you are, you can actually enjoy voice. You can interact and using this in, in a very good manner where obviously like entertainment can play a big role, but from a healthcare perspective, you can call on someone and they can understand what you're asking for without having to be in the room. And you don't need to be monitored by a video or anything like that. You can do it all by a voice. So I, I, I think that this article highlights a lot of good things. I'm really truly showing how far we have come as an industry and how we can really use this technology and the various technologies behind it and showing truly the benefit to consumers uh, what, what's in there. Um, so, no, no, I really liked it and enjoyed this article. And thank you for sharing this and, and having us to talk about it. Um, and from a and pure entertainment perspective, I make a lot of parallels in seeing what hotel, big hotel chains are doing now. They are putting smart speakers and voice assistants into the hotel rooms because they want, like John said, they want the hygienic way of, of interacting so people don't have to touch that uh, screen or a remote control, or whatever, but you can have entertainment and other things completely uh, touchless. So no, I, I think this article highlighted a lot of good things. Excellent. Yeah, complete agreement. And Rana, I'll turn to you. Uh, you know, you, um, you've been in the space uh, for quite a while. You've got a lot of experience. We've all sort of been through, uh, is voice and healthcare ever going to be a thing? Oh, wait, okay, now it is, uh, which is kind of interesting. What, what stood out to you uh, about this piece? Yeah, look, I think I think there there are two ways uh, to look at this piece, um, and there's really sort of uh, two different uh, perspectives, in my opinion. Right. So the first is, um, you know, the the evolution of uh, the technological capabilities around sort of leveraging vocal biomarkers, and uh, that's relatively new, right? So we've we haven't had a lot of things happening in this space until I'd say the last five to seven years, or maybe if you want to push it to the last 10 years. Um, but the level of accuracy has still been really more like, you know, relevant to a lab setting, not necessarily real world. And that's changed, right? So it's, it's always been, we've known that biomarkers are very, very powerful and vocal biomarkers are very, very powerful. And it can tell a lot about many, many different things. 
including the state of mind, including, uh, you know, your health and well-being. Um, you know, there's a lot of science and uh, research that has been done into sort of like, you know, um, can, can, I, can I tell your health based on the vocal cues and the vocal biomarkers from your tone of voice um, and generally how you're speaking and interacting? And the answer is yes, right? So this has been a um, very interesting study that was done by Professor Kraus at Yale, uh, which uh, I love because it sort of keys into what we do at Behavioral Signals. Um, but he compared the accuracy of cues one can derive from just voice or the, uh, you know, and also voice plus facial expressions. And he proved that um, voice was way more powerful because it sort of it comes from inside the body, from the stomach, and you know from the lungs. And it's hard to um, hide how you're actually feeling from your tone of voice, uh, but you can you can hide how you're feeling on your facial expressions. You can control your facial expressions, and that's something you cannot just like breathing. You cannot control uh, you know your, your tonal uh, deliverance. And so we've known that, and I think you know we sort of known that you could you could you could cue off on those essential um, biomarkers to predict a lot of different things, um, and you you know maybe maybe potential uh, heart conditions, and certainly mood. I mean, we do that, right? So mood and the cognitive state of mind, and uh, we've taken it a step further by sort of saying, you know, we have this information about the cognitive state of mind using the tonal uh, signals you know, emotions and behaviors, what else can we do with it, right? So we ended up building, um, um, you know, an intent predictor where, you know, you could predict if, uh, if a client's going to buy or not buy. So we could like, you know, like giving an example, in the first 20 seconds of a call, we can make a binary prediction um, if the client's going to buy or not buy. So it's not a potential probability, it's a yes or no. And that prediction is about 83 to 85% accurate. It is that powerful, right? So now you can sort of take that and say, you know, it could go into different directions. So piece of it is that vocal biomarkers and evolution of the technology. Uh, the other piece is simply, you know, if you take the vocal biomarker piece away, is evolution of machine learning, um, and um, you know, sort of um, how that entire space has progressed, right? So what we're seeing is that the ability to, or the cost of training AI models is declining rapidly, right? So I think, you know, I just saw a video from Kathy Woods at, at the conference recently, and she spoke about how um, the, the, the cost of training an AI model is dropping 68% every year. Every year it drops 68%, every year, right? So like, you know, processing 1 billion images um, about say seven, eight years ago was $10,000 and now it's about two cents. Um, amazing, right? So, and next year is going to be again a 68% drop. So now you can do a lot of different things, right? So what you're seeing in this use case is, okay, you have uh, all these interactions with patients and, uh, or their coughs, so you have these cough recordings and you obviously know uh, the, the outcomes because these are past interactions. So you know what happened. I mean, the doctors diagnose these patients. So in this case, I mean, machine learning, sometimes causation is correlation, right? So you're sort of like saying, okay, can I, can I, can I measure for certain patterns in certain coughs and then and correlate with the actual outcomes that was diagnosed? And can I come up with a certain pattern or a trend, uh, which then allows me to go predict if someone uh, is suffering with a condition based on that pattern. And, you know, if you have cheap uh, training model capabilities, you throw like, you know, a couple of billion, uh, you know, voice recordings into that model and bam, I mean, interesting things come out and, Sometimes it's relatively accurate. And so I think that's what we're seeing here, which is, you know, it's really, 
is not a lot of uh, biomarker capability, I think, in that use case. It's more of, I'm just going to process all of these uh, audio files and then correlate with the outcome that I already know of and try to come up with a pattern. And uh, sometimes you get surprised. And I think in this case, yeah, I mean, it looks like, you know, there's a certain cough. It is a certain condition. Um, but, you know, if you remember back in the day, the doctor used to sort of make you cough and listen to it. I mean, some had a better year. So I think uh, there's, there's definitely some science backing that. So very, very interesting. And uh, I, think, I think the whole space around vocal biomarkers is um, going to be very, uh, a, a very cool space to watch. And you're now looking at these use cases where um, Apple has, Apple Watch is now listening to your, um, your voice and your interactions and it's coming up with a health assessment. Um, how accurate that is, don't know, uh, probably not very accurate. I wouldn't like, you know, uh, but, you know, if there is, a, you know, if there's a concerning signal that comes out and that leads you to go get a checkup, um, I think it proves its point. I mean, it, it, you know, that's all you really needed to do. It, it doesn't have to be a doctor on your wrist, but if it's sort of giving you certain signals and it giving it to you repeatedly, and then you get it checked by a doctor, I think that's pretty powerful in my opinion. So uh, super cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, complete agreement. And, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, Canary Speech. I've talked, to them, talked about them a bunch. You know, this is their bailiwick. There's some other companies working with uh, <clears throat> biomarkers. And um, yeah, it's a fascinating field uh, is what it is. And it'll be fun to watch. Um, I'm going to go on to story number three, and I'm going to read this headline. This is from CNBC. A startup says its voice recognition technology beats Google and Amazon at reducing racial bias. So this um, article um, is a, uh, I'll, I'll be nice and call it a glorified press release here. Um, my intention with uh, uh, including this article is not to discuss Speechmatics. I'm sure they're a great group of folks. Um, instead, I want to just sort of take a moment and allow the three of y'all to um, just share when somebody talks about bias in AI, uh, the three of y'all come at, come at the voice and AI landscape from three very different points of view. I would love to hear your thoughts uh, because I think this article has numerous problems. I'll go into those after we have this conversation. Um, you know, if there's something that stood out to you about the article, feel free to reference it. But more importantly, just would love to hear um, and get a snapshot in time of when somebody talks about there's bias in AI <clears throat> or even brings it up, what's top of mind for you? Um, with your three organizations and how do you think about it? And Thomas, I'm starting with you and then we'll go to Rana and John. Oh yeah, thank you, Bradley. Um, first of all, I think that the, the article itself is very good pointing out the fact that there is a problem. Uh, it's back to the first article, uh, um, you know, listening well. <laughs> Uh, because if you're interacting with a machine, no matter if it's through a customer care center or if, it, if you're like we do, produce entertainment and you want people to be entertained, it's extremely important that um, when you speak and you say something that the machine, in this case, the AI, understand what you're saying. 
And uh, I, if anyone knows that, we are based in Sweden. We have students a little bit here and there around the world. We know that accents and dialects are, can be extremely difficult to be interpreted. Um, so I think that looking at it, we need to come to a way higher percentage of the machines, the voice assistants, actually understanding people. We need to improve that a lot, uh, no matter if we look at the racial bias or if we're looking at simply accents and dialects from uh, various parts of the world. One of the biggest frustrations we have from our users, the consumers, when they use our products is that there are too many errors. They're saying something, they're giving a command and it's not always understood. And therefore they think that the, the game or the interactive audio book is not as fun because they have to repeat and repeat to get the command across. But that brings us back to what you're saying about the AI part, Bradley. And obviously any AI, no matter what kind of AI we're using, it's always down to the data set. If we have a wide enough data set, and if we are using a data set that is actually bringing in the various dialects, accents, uh, it's going to be easier to train that AI. We're going to, to learn. But then obviously also depending on the voice assistant itself, we need to be able to take that technology they provide us and use the data coming from it and interpret it in the, in the correct way and then feedback so people understand. And once again, AI will help. But for AI to work, we need to have way better data sets than what we have today. And then, I'm not sure if this is you know, the right moment to bring that up, but Google, their initiative, what they're doing right now, and actually paying a lot of people around the world, um, saying, hey, we can actually pay you for speaking, and we can listen to your voice, and we can start learning from your voice, your dialect, and your various uh, accents. I think that's an, an, an excellent initiative. So I think that, yes, I agree with you. Bradley, that this article has a little bit more of a glorified press release and a number of things that should maybe not be there. But I like the fact that they're bringing up the, the problem and, and they're putting the, the light on, on a problem we have in the industry and that needs to be fixed. And it's being fixed right now. Um, so yeah, many thoughts on it, but, but that's kind of summarizing it all. That's perfect. Yeah, Thomas, thank you for that. Uh, Rada, I'll go to you. Um, if, if anything stood out to the art, you know, from the article, feel free to call it out. But basically, from your point of view of behavioral signals, someone brings up bias in AI. What does that mean to you? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the article is problematic in one big way that it's making these claims without necessarily, you know, proving a, you know, showing a link or to any proof. Uh, where's the data set? Where's the where's the research? Where's sort of like you know. Um, um, what's backing the claim that you're, so it is press release like, I mean, I think you're right. Uh, it kind of is like more clickbaity kind of a thing. Um, you know, the problem, I think that being said, uh, of course, there's a lot of bias in AI, but it's not AI that is biased. It's the people that are biased, right? So um, the bias in AI uh, creeps from two aspects. One is the, the programmer, uh, the person who's, you know, um, coding those models and building those models. And second is the data. And I mean, I mean, if you look at who's coding these models, uh, you know, a typical AI programmer is as a young white male who's paid really well. And, uh, you know, what is the perspective of that person for uh, maybe a, a person of color living in, in a project? You know, very little. I mean, you can't relate. And so, you know, you're going to have to sort of like, you know, uh, take that into consideration. The other piece is data, right? So if you look at a data, um, we all know, I mean, the AI is as good as the data uh, that is used to build that AI. And uh, if you don't have a lot of data, you're going to have a very poor AI or very poor model. 
And so some of the communities that are underrepresented uh, just don't have enough data in the system. They don't, they don't have data. I mean, the data is uh, not just the fact that data might itself be biased because there are biases that have been put in, historical and cultural biases, but it's just not enough data. I mean, there's not enough data for certain voices and certain for tones, certain accents. I mean, I'd say, I mean, how many, what data set can one achieve for uh, the Tibetan language? I mean, can you find it somewhere? I mean, probably none. I mean, and so, um, you know, so that's a problem. And, uh, but there is a, so I think it's extremely hard to eliminate bias. And plus, I mean, you know, um, if you're building an AI model, like we do at behavioral signals, you have to understand that the entire aspect of training is, it's, it's sort of like, you know, has to be curated uh, from every piece of that chain, uh, which is like, you know, where you're sourcing that data, uh, how you're annotating it, who's annotating it, um, you know, I, I, you have enough diversity in the data itself from different age groups and, you know, age and sex and different regions of the world. And that in itself is extremely hard to do because you have to out, you have to source that data in. And so you have to sort of, you know, you're relying on a variety of third parties in that entire chain to make sure that there's not a, not a bias and it's almost impossible to maintain that. And then it's, then when it comes to you and you're building those models, then it's in your hands and you sort of understand how you're, uh, how you're actually going to actually build those models and in, in a bias-free way. I think there's one silver lining in this somewhat gray cloud uh, is that if you're going to build a commercial AI model um, and your model is biased, you're going to fail as a business. Um, you know, a, a biased AI model doesn't really work well and eventually your product will fail. And, and so you'll get beat out of the system. Um, I mean, if you build a BI model and the people use it and then say, hey, it's not really accurate. I mean, the decision it makes is it's really biased. Okay, well, I don't like it. I don't like the product. And actually it's not about liking, it just doesn't work. It's not really accurate. Um, and so there's an underlying commercial incentive uh, and these commercial organizations to make bias-free AI engines. I mean, and unless there is that commercial intent, uh, people really don't do things, uh, you know, especially commercial entities. So I think there is that good thing that, you know, it sort of, it's, uh, it's, um, it sort of uh, weeds out uh, the problematic uh, models out of the system. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think bias is a very, very deep topic. There's also this big philosophical debate happening right now in the industry. I actually did a podcast uh, where I got uh, very deep into it, um, you know, uh, recently, um, where we sort of talked about bias um, and diversity and bias. And the, the problem is that, you know, the debate in the industry is that, you know, are you going to stick true to the premise of machine learning uh, or are you going to control the dynamic, right? So, for example, um, how do we humans learn, right? So we humans are not biased uh, by birth. Uh, we're biased by the surroundings of the ecosystem. So as soon as we're coming to the world where uh, the bias kicks in, they, the first, first aspect of bias is our parents and their beliefs and their values. And they're telling us what's right, what's wrong. And we're observing them. And then it's our friends and you know, other uh, loved ones. And then we're building those bias engines by learning from the surroundings and learning from the ecosystem. And it's about pattern recognition. The machine learning is a model of that human learning, which is, okay, I'm going to give you data. You're going to make a decision based on certain attributes. Then you're going to validate that decision uh, based on whether, you know, it's accurate or not accurate. And then you're going to double down or reject those, those hypotheses. Um, 
So if you if you think about it, um, a, a true independent thinking AI engine should eventually become biased uh, because it should learn from the surrounding. Uh, unless you're putting in certain you know codes and saying don't be biased, don't do this, don't do that. Well, then the question is who's doing it, and how does is that person God in playing in that role of machine learning? And uh, you know is that is that also a source for a bias? And you know, how do you control that? So I think I think there's a it's a complicated topic. Um, and uh, what we've seen is like you know, and I'll stop after this. Is uh, I think there was a piece of article which I um, I can't recall which one, and they looked at you know uh, you know uh, uh, the deep grams and a few other um, you know AI engines that are out there, uh, including Watson, and found that they're very biased because they're actually very good AI and uh, they've learned from the ecosystem and they're independent thinkers and independent thinkers will be biased. So, you know, I'll leave you with that to think about, um, yeah. Well, yeah, no, I think that describes a lot of the crux of the, the issue. And John, I'm gonna to turn to you and, and uh, if anything stood out about the article, feel free to, to call it out. But basically with your role at Open Voice Network, Someone brings up bias in AI. Where does your mind go? What do you think about? What uh, What's top of mind? First thing, Bradley, to your great question, and, and I'm just going to riff off of the great comments of Ron and Thomas. But the first thing from the Open Voice Network is, yes, it's an issue. Yes, it's an issue. But the question is less of that's an issue, because I think that is broadly understood. It is, you know, the article suggests there's technology that now enables greater, you know, awareness and understanding of certain, you know, ethnic groups. It's a data set issue, first and foremost. You know, is the technology, the fact that they simply have a better, deeper, wider, better trained data set? Perhaps, you know, we have to learn. But I think there's another takeaway that from the open voice network we face, and I think we broadly as the industry face, and that is the outside of our bubble. And we all operate inside of our technology bubble and our voice bubble. But outside of that bubble, you know, AI is just kind of, wow, it's fairy dust and magic. Stuff happens with AI. Well, no there are processes and AI happens through this and this and this and this, that is simply not understood. And AI, because it's not understood, is feared, is broadly feared and, oh, I don't know about this. You know, it's interesting, you talk about voice, then you talk about conversational AI. Those are two different things to people. And yet, broadly, you know, voice is a subset of conversational AI, but we bring up AI outside of our bubble, where it is not understood, the processors are not known, the parameters and the issues and dependencies are not known, it gets very scary. It's part of what we deal with when we think about how you know we address the issues, very real issues of just being heard, of being understood. And I'm echoing what Thomas said. If you are an individual of a certain ethnicity or of a certain gender or of a certain age, are you going to be heard? That's critical. You know, so there's a lot here to work through. Is it an issue? Absolutely. Is it 
<laughs> is there some secret sauce? Uh, probably not. You know, my BS meter began to quiver when I began reading it, you know. Um, is it something we had to address? Absolutely. Y'all have been mentioning secret sauce and the, the whole show. I'm starting to get hungry. Uh, separate <laughs> side note. Uh, <laughs> um, no, this is great. Uh, it's great to get y'all's perspective on it. Um, you know, I will, I will note a couple of things on this article um, before we move on. You know, I think this article and articles like it um, actually do a lot of disservice to the topic. Uh, and I'll just read the headline again. A startup says it's uh, it's voice recognition tech beats Google and Amazon at reducing racial bias. First of all, I don't think it serves anybody for this to be some sort of like gamesmanship of, 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 of you know, some sort of game of one-upsmanship. Like, let's see if we can get some reporter somewhere to write an article just because we, uh, you know, did something um, that we can maybe claim is a little less racist than somebody else. But when you get into the article, uh, what I really don't like about it is that, um, so the headline talks about reducing racial bias, and then the article is only about Black folks. Well, what about Asians? You know, what about Hispanics? It's like, if you, if you uh, maybe you improve uh, language recognition for African-Americans, uh, by some amount, but maybe this doesn't talk about Asians at all. Maybe it's terrible. You know, it's it's a thousand percent off for Asians. So net net net, uh, you didn't reduce racial bias at all. But with the way the journalist wrote the article, uh, which you could call that racist, since we're calling everything racist these days, you know, it, it, it's it's just a distracting, poorly written press release type of article that really does no service to the topic at all. And uh, it is a serious topic. And the three of y'all you know, addressed it with the seriousness it has. Um, you know, stuff like this, just throwing it out there and using racial bias or, or, or you know, as a front door to get some press coverage. I don't like it one bit. Uh, and here I am, you know, shining a light on the article. But it, it's, I think it's important to talk about not only do we need to make progress in the actual technology, but we need to make a lot of progress in how we discuss the progress of the technology also. And, um, you know, so anyway, I'll get going, I'll get off my soapbox here and, uh, and we'll move on to our final story. Um, so the final story was something that the, the uh, local Florida press wrote about Project Voice X which was an in-person event uh, a week ago. I really don't want to dwell on this article either, uh, unless something stood out to you all about it. Uh, to close the show, I would love to simply hear from the three of y'all, you know, y'all are executives uh, with, with busy lives and a lot of responsibility. Ron, I'm going to start with you and then John and Thomas, our original order. In your estimation, and uh, line of sight on your respective universes, are in-person events back? Um, what are your thoughts on business travel? Are you uh, traveling a bunch? Are you reticent to travel a bunch? Um, are you looking at 2022 and, and seeing yourself on a plane a lot or you're not? Uh, share with us um, your thoughts on uh, business travel and events. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Uh... 
I mean, so personally for me, I, I have been traveling. Um, in fact, I already had about uh, three or four uh, international trips and a bunch of local trips this year. Um, it's not fun. Um, it's, you know, it's way more complicated uh, than it used to be uh, with all the COVID protocols and COVID tests that one has to take in and out, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but um, thankfully so, it, it's coming back. I think the in-person events um, are slowly coming back. Um, I see uh, there's, there's a few uh, that are now happening in the Bay Area that are in person, uh, but also next year, uh, most of those events that was, were canceled for the last two years are back. They're scheduled. Uh, will they hold or not? Not sure. Uh, but I think I think it's about time. Um, I think we've sort of like tapped the, the productivity juice uh, as much as we can from this these remote interactions. And I think we're all sort of like, you know, feeling exhausted from it. Um, we kind of need to sort of connect in person. We got to talk to each other um, and, and ideate. I mean, what I've seen is that it's almost impossible to uh, be uh, organic in a, in a Zoom call. It's very transactional. I mean, there's going to be agenda. There's going to be questions. You can't just talk. I mean, uh, most people can't. I mean, you can't just hang out and just chat. Um, and that's where a lot of cool stuff comes out. So that has to be in person. So I think this event is really exciting. Um, and I think uh, also it's, um, you know, it's important to have voice focused events. Uh, there's not a lot of those. So I think, you know, the ones we have, we got a prize and treasure and uh, amazing things comes out of it. There's only ours. There's no other. Yeah. I, I know that's yeah. what you meant to say. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple uh, that, that claim to be, but they're not really voice. I mean, they have voice tracks maybe, but this is a voice only focus. I think it's a very unique event from that perspective. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just being facetious with, with that. Uh, yeah. You know, John, uh, I want to get your thoughts on this as well. Um, business travel back, in-person back, uh, you know, you're going to be on a plane a bunch or not so much. What are your thoughts? You know, I'm going to be in a plane and probably much more than I ever anticipated. I've been at three face-to-face -face events in the past month. I go to a fourth this afternoon, a fifth next week. And the you know, and I would say two months ago, I would have said, oh, gosh, Zoom is going to be fine. Zoom is great, as Rana said, for the transactional, for the agenda-based, for making presentations. But Bradley, I was reminded Project Voice as a great example. Um, the opportunity to listen and listen carefully and closely, to see someone, to meet someone, to hear someone, what they need, what they're thinking about, that doesn't happen in a Zoom call. It happens in a hallway. It happens over coffee. It happens just in a casual you know, moment in between. And so that is what I have, again, realized to my great delight is the tremendous value of being face-to-face. -face. Um, I've always been a believer face-to-face. -face. I've always traveled a great deal, and I have benefited from that. And so is it fully back? No. Are people still concerned? Yes. Are spouses still saying, John, are you crazy? Yes. But the opportunity to listen, to meet, to listen, and to learn is 10x face-to-face. -face. And for that reason, yeah, it's coming back and come Q1 2022. Uh, hello, United Airlines. Here I come. Perfect. And Thomas, uh, I'll, I'll uh, conclude with you on this one. Uh, business travel uh, 
conferences in person. Um, your thoughts as we head into 2022. Uh, a lot of what John ended up with, United Airlines, here we come. Yeah, no, and, and I, I think it's uh, absolutely, I'm going to travel a lot more. Uh, and I see it's a necessity uh, because um, Zoom calls, whatever, Google Meets, excellent tool if you just want to talk about one topic, get something done. And you might call it transactional, but you might also call it like, you know, goal-oriented, one thing at a time. But the thing that are the in-person events, like 40 Voice X, excellent event last week. Uh, we sit and, meet and talk around uh, a drink or a dinner or, the, you know, at the conference. And you can have a kind of a dynamic conversation. There can be five, six people participating. And we're sharing information. We're sharing knowledge in a very dynamic way where it's not always like keeping staying to the topic because we enjoy each other's company. We enjoy learning from each other. And once again, back to the, that this industry is not very old. And I'm referring back to when I started in the gaming industry a little bit more than 20 years ago. It was the same feeling. It was a young industry. And look where this industry has come, come what has become of it now. It's a $180 billion industry these days. It's fantastic. You know, it's, it's successful. And I see that, you know, since we are so many different verticals in the voice industry, it's extremely together and talk about these challenges and, you know, the opportunities and et cetera. You can only do that in in-person events. And so, so absolutely, I might not say United, here I come, but whatever airline is going to be, yeah, it's going to be a lot more travel and it's going to be a lot more in-person events and it's a necessity to actually thrive and, and build the business that you, you, you need to do. So, so um, for sure. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. And I feel the same way. Um, and I will note that as in-person events have come back um, to, you know, whatever extent they've come back, we'll just use that phrase have come back. Um, it's been top down. It's been um, very senior executive heavy, uh, CEO heavy, uh, C-suite level heavy. And it makes sense because um, those are people who have more on the line. Uh, and so there's more impetus, uh, more reasons uh, to get on a plane and overcome the objections, uh, whatever they may be. Uh, now, I will say this, I'm seeing um, a little bit of, of it moving into middle management now and middle management starting to be willing to get back on a plane um, for the first time uh, for business. And that's exciting uh, because we need that too. Um, so it's, it's working its way back. And some people, you know, uh, it, it's uneven. You know, some people are all about it. Other people are, are still objectors. And uh, that's probably going to remain that way for some time. But it's good to get y'all's thoughts uh, here at the end of the show on, on events um, and where we are with those. So that wraps up This Week in Voice, uh, Season 6, Episode 4. Um, gentlemen, thank you for taking the time. Uh, to share your uh, thoughts and your expertise with not just me, but the audience as well. Thank you, Bradley. Thanks, Bradley. You, you uh, thank it. you, Bradley. Yeah, thanks to all of y'all. So if you're watching on YouTube or if you're listening on your podcast provider of choice, uh, we appreciate you sharing uh, and giving us some of your time as well. Um, Thank you for uh, subscribing to the show or listening to it. And until next time.